I love this city. It's a, it's a fact. It's the greatest city in the history of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> Discovered by the Germans in 1904, they named it Santiago, which of course in German means a whale's vagina. Hmm. No, there's no way that's correct. I'm sorry, I was trying to impress you. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what it means. <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't think anyone knows what it means anymore. Scholars maintain that the translation was lost hundreds of years ago. It, doesn't it mean Saint Diego? No. No. No, that's... That's what it means. Really. Well, agree to disagree. We have to do that a lot, John. Yeah, agree to disagree. <laughs> uh, welcome to Surf Stories, the podcast brought to you by the Florida Surf Film Festival. I'm your host, John Brooks. With me, as always, is co-host Kevin Miller. Yep, I'm here, and what a pleasure it is to have Lauren Hill on the show today. Yeah, I got to admit that uh, when we talked about having Lauren as a guest, I never thought we'd end up talking about whales' private parts. But I know, right? Yeah, that that's funny um, that you say that. But she was the one that brought it up. I, I, we didn't do it. Yeah, no. I mean, normally I'm the one that's inappropriate. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> Deep shrug. Not, not that it's inappropriate at all, but um, yeah, it was uh, a really enjoyable conversation and uh, so funny and great to catch up with Lauren. I've known Lauren for over twenty years, and uh, she's since moved away to Australia and resides in the Byron Bay area with her partner and their newborn baby boy, uh, Manoa, uh, her partner, Dave Rostovich. And um, you actually, uh, you had something in common with Lauren as well with uh, where you guys went to school. Absolutely. That's uh, true. I taught at Stetson University for 12 years while she was a student, but didn't bump into her in the accounting department. Um, but, uh, you know, or, was... or any other surfer. Exactly. <laughs> There are a couple. I mean, hey, there's a couple. I, I was actually a student at uh, Stetson, and there are quite a few surfers over there. In fact, they will be helping us out this coming weekend at the Florida Surf Film Festival, the eighth annual. Some of the surf team will be over here, and, uh, you know, I'm glad to include those folks as part of the volunteer team. What a masterful segue that was. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, by the way, New Smyrna, what does that mean in German? <laughs> I don't think I can say. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. Okay, well, let's get it on. Well, I don't think get it on with Lauren Hill is probably appropriate, but you know what I mean. Yeah, let's uh, begin the conversation with Lauren. <laughs> there we go. It's wonderful, but it's also difficult. And you, you have one child, right, at this point? Just one, and one feels like more than enough. Okay, all right, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Oh, now, also, I had a I had a really, really intense, death-defying pregnancy. Wow. So it's just it it's a bit of feels like tempting fate to try to go back into that space again. Well, that's wonderful. You've got the four-year-old. What's his or his name? Or yeah, his name is Minoa. Not okay. not Manoa, like South Pacific Minoa, M-I-N-O-A. Um, the Minoans were a, um, an ancient civilization who inhabited the island of Crete. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, they're Sorry. a fascinating culture. They were seafaring, goddess-worshipping folk. And um, yeah, Dave and I both have kind of been captivated by their culture and how little it's been studied and recognized. So 
That's where his name came from. Awesome. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's great. Well, I think uh, John and I were uh, sitting at the beginning of COVID wondering if we would ever show movies again. I mean, going into COVID, mm -hmm. like all of us, we thought it was going to be SARS 1.0 over in three weeks. And then we were going to resume showing movies in June. Um, but holy cow, this did not work out that way. So we were, um, come May, we were like, oh, go, okay. So we want to keep all of our quote sponsors happy, but like that's secondary. We also want to have some fun. We've built up this wonderful festival of people and we sit around, you know, the dinner table at some of these festivals with Ira Opper and some of these old TV producer filmmakers who've been around the block and made movies and um we were hearing stories that were worthy of documentary style you know well podcasts and so this was the mm -hmm. natural extension of that and while we may not be on the like cutting edge of of like you know number of listens or whatever we're very happy with the way it's turned out and so you know 20 episodes in um, it's been fun to connect with people that we really wanted to connect with. And you've been on our list since day one, and it's taken too long to get you mm. on this thing. Um, and I know you're working on, I mean, you've had a podcast going for a while. Give us some background on that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for that. That's really kind. And, um, yeah, I also find the podcast just an incredibly satisfying, personally satisfying medium. I mean, you know, not even taking how many people actually listen to it into consideration. It's just a personally enriching thing to do to get to find people that you respect or admire and get to actually barrage them with questions. <laughs> I personally find that <laughs> really compelling. Um, and I love, you know, that the podcast gives us the opportunity to do that regularly. Um, and yeah, like you through this, um, um, extraordinary period in time to get to connect with our global surfing community in deep and meaningful ways because it's not happening in person. Um, yeah, the podcast, our podcast, Water People, has been that outlet for Dave and I to, um, yeah, call up old friends and and harass people who maybe don't call us friends yet and <laughs> and just try to <laughs> dig into their lives and um, and extract the stories that, like you, we just love hearing you know after a long day in the ocean you're sitting around a campfire and having a beer or a cup of tea and and just getting whisked away into someone else's reality someone else's experience we are hardwired for that we are the storytelling animal and um and it speaks to stories speak to us in deep and meaningful ways that you know data just doesn't quite touch so yeah it feels like a feels like a um a meaningful thing to do with time. Absolutely. And I was actually, I was thinking earlier um, tonight, um, I was trying to think when it was, I met you, I first met you when I, I think you were at Stetson at the time Yep. and it was out in the water at Ponce and yep. uh, Ch Chad Doyle introduced me to you. And yeah. Um, yeah and, and so I know you, uh, I think you have multiple degrees um, mm. correct. That give, give us a little background on, uh, cause I know, I, I know you're, you're a professional surfer, you're an author, you're an activist, um, actor, um, mother, <laughs> uh, badass, like fill, fill us in how, 
you know, from that briefly, like when I met you and you were in school at Stetson to, you know, how you ended up in Byron Bay. Yeah, I feel like I've managed to get pretty mediocre at quite a few things um, <laughs> over the last decade or so. Um, so I graduated from Stetson in 2008. Actually, I guess I'll step back before that. I grew up in St. Augustine on Anastasia Island um, surfing beach breaks that no one else was surfing because that's how Florida is. You can always go and get a peek to yourself, which is one of the things that I absolutely love about going home to surf. People, people along the stretch of coast in particular can't even fathom that reality. So it's a, it's a really special and unique thing about this Florida, Floridian surfing experience. Um, I decided to go to Stetson because of its proximity to the ocean um, and, and making decisions based on proximity to surf has pretty much been my true north <laughs> across <laughs> my adult life <laughs> somehow. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think probably same, other same people season. can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish, I wish I could say the same thing, but Stetson, <laughs> unfortunately was the only school that accepted me to go to college. Like I, <laughs> and it was close enough to the beach where it was like pass. The other option for the record, the other option was the university of South Dakota in Vermilion. Uh, and that was not happening. So my mom was no. like, either way, you're going to leave the house. You're getting out of here. <laughs> and I'm telling you, uh, whatever I had fingers crossed on Stetson and thank God I, I was at that. I actually ended up teaching there for a little while too, which was fun. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I have nothing but incredibly fond memories of my time there and, um, going to a small liberal arts school really shaped my career path um, because you know you get the chance to dabble in lots of different subject matter in a way that maybe some of the bigger universities don't necessarily let you um, so I'm really grateful for my time there and actually it was my time there um, as I was transitioning out of competitive surfing as a teenager um, and figuring out what I a little bit of maybe what I was curious about doing as an adult. Um, I had a great professor at Stetson, Dr. Um, Tony Abbott, and he encouraged me to investigate surfing in an academic capacity. Um, so I ended up writing a thesis about basically how surfing could be seen as environmentally destructive. Um, and that sort of set the tone for me using writing as a um, as an outlet for communication. I didn't study writing. I studied environmental science and social science and was just a full-on um, school nerd. I loved it for whatever reason it, it suited me. I know it's not for everyone, but I really love being in a learning community and, and university, especially Stetson was just so wonderful. Um, Can we give a quick yes. shout out to Terry Farrell, yeah. by the way? Oh, yes, another legend. Best. A yeah. legend. Absolutely. Yeah. I love his he, Facebook posts for the record, the uh, nature walks. I mean, I feel like I'm on <laughs> National Geographic. I know. Well, I feel like one of the things about our modern iteration of school is that it's like, how can you manage to make science boring? But somehow mainstream schools manage to do that. But at Stetson with people like Terry Farrell and Tony Abbott, they brought science to life in a way that's actually reflective of the awe and majesty and just the bizarreness of the living world. Um, so yeah, shout out to those teachers and professors who go the extra lengths to, um, to, to reflect the magic in their teaching. Um, so I graduated from Stetson in 2008. Um, I'd studied abroad in Australia as a sophomore at uni and um, studied 
actually just 35 minutes from where I'm sitting right now at Southern Cross Uni, caught the bus to Byron Bay and stayed four days a week in a youth hostel and then had class three days a week. Um, so I, I managed to finagle my schedule so I could maximize surfing time and um, went back to Stetson, wrote my thesis, graduated, and then the global financial, sorry, the global financial crisis was going down the year that I graduated. And so there was just no way to get a job. Um, and I had massive student debt, like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in student debt. Um, so I just started working menial jobs. Like I had it, I basically set it up like a game. I was going to try to pay off my debt before I had to start paying interest because, you know, you start accruing interest a year after you graduate with student loans. So I was like, okay, I'm going to work as many jobs as I can in each 24 hour day <laughs> and try to pay off these loans. So I was, I worked um, as a deckhand and as an assistant for a real estate agent, I built his websites. I taught surfing. I don't even remember the other things, but there were plenty of other <laughs> really random jobs. I tried waitressing, but I only lasted two days. I found it, <laughs> found people like just so rude. I felt demoralized by it. Um, so what that freed up for me working those menial jobs was usually some time in the morning when I could surf. And, um, and I was getting to surf a whole lot more than I was getting to even when I was at Stetson because I was devoting so much time to, to study and staying up late in the library. Um, and um, yeah, so I started surfing and I started thinking about how I could combine this newfound love of riding with my love of surfing. Um, so I managed to convince Tori Strange, owner of the surf station, to pay me a month's wage in exchange for making a short film clip a day. And this was in, this was in, I think, 2009. So it was like a little bit pre-vlog, definitely pre-Instagram uh, days. And so I did that and I, and I got to explore this sort of um, interspace of like, surfing and and storytelling and then also interviewing other people about their surfing experiences so um that really set me down a trajectory which I feel like I'm still on now but from there um I ended up coming back to Byron to visit my now partner Dave Rastovich and um that was in 2010 and I haven't really well we've left quite a lot to travel but I've been based here since then Awesome. Yeah. I think uh, I was teaching there when you were there, for the record. I um, had a couple classes in the accounting department. Did you ever make your way to the accounting department? <laughs> we would not have crossed paths, no. <laughs> okay. okay. So talk about groundbreaking environmental outreach. <laughs> Sorry. No, never mind. That, that absolutely did not happen over there. But um, <laughs> I have you know, <laughs> anyway, uh, it's glad to hear you were early on in the filmmaking. Um, and what a, I mean, not, I mean, that's a good idea for the surf station to, I mean, that Facebook was definitely around, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a, that's an interesting way to like make a little bit of a living, but also promote and uh, help somebody you really believed in and out of St. Augustine. And so when you decided to move to full-time Australia, how did yeah. that, how did that impact your life and, and your career path? Mm. 
Um, well, I mean, I first came and, you know, basically what I knew was that I had, so I have to back up a little bit. The reason why I came back to Australia is because Dave and I had met when I was studying abroad um, at Southern Cross in Lismore. We'd met through a mutual friend, Andrew Crockett, who makes beautiful surfing books like Switchfoot. Um, yeah. And, and honestly, us. Lauren, just to butt in real quick. Sure. The, there's probably one to two people who are listening to this podcast. Secondly, um, that one person may or may not know that you're married to Dave Rostovich, who last name <laughs> included in this might help everybody understand that uh, that that, you know, partnership was uh, happening in 2010, just to make sure everybody listening understands. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he's, he's an all right surfer himself. Um, no, he's like, actually his his body, his, his body surfing, his body surfing is just absolutely mind blowing. I don't think people get to see enough of that, but, um, uh, we, we first locked eyes in a room, um, actually in his house in 2010. And we just had this bizarre kind of like otherworldly moment when you like time stops and you're just like, whoa, you know, what just happened? It was this look of like, I don't know, logic defiance. There was something there. And, um, and so anyway, we, we were both in other relationships at the time. So didn't pursue it in any way, but I went back to Florida. He continued on with his life. And around the time that I was graduating, he sent me an email and asked me to come and visit and work on some surfing projects together. And so I did, I came back, um, to Byron, um, and we set up a little cabin on the property that we're living on now. It's 20, 20 acres just outside of Byron, um, and lived completely off the grid, no running water, you know, like boiling water, um, on the stove to wash after a winter surf and composting toilets. And eventually we got one solar panel to be able to charge up phones and stuff. Um, but it was a really humbling way to live after growing up in what I would call rather sterile Floridian suburbs. Um, yeah, so it was, it was just a completely different reality um, that made me want to dive into, I mean, I, ha- I, had, I had a predisposition toward being curious about living closer to the land because of my environmental science um, studies, but this was like, this was the, the living incarnation of those studies to go, okay, you don't know how to grow food, here's some earth, here's some water, there's sunlight, work it out. <laughs> like, yeah. just give it a try. Um, so we've pretty much been doing that um, in various capacities over the last, yeah, uh, 11 years that we've been together. <clears throat> and um, I think yeah. I, like, there's a lot of us that have always felt too reliant on, um, I don't know, the man, like, you know, electricity and, and everything that comes with mm-hmm. modern civilization. So to hear that you decided that that was something you wanted to experience and then actually did it is not only brave, but it's like you guys walked the walk, you know what I mean? And Mm. I've always wondered, like, how do I do that in the United States? Like, how do I do that in this culture? There's, there's really a Dave. There's really no wave. Sorry, no way (laughs) we can actually I mean, there is a way to do that here in the U.S., but I'm just having a hard time imagining how I pull that off. Like there's Mm. probably, John, I mean, 
it's it's nearly impossible given our constraints the way i mean having kids and living off the grid you would have to literally go to samsula not only that but i mean our our municipalities and our our local governments actually try to prevent that from happening which is unfortunate um and actually Mm -hmm. I'm, i'm curious if if in australia you you face that same challenge um, from like municipal leaders, because here they, no. they basically make it illegal to, to live off the grid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that that's true with rainwater catchment, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In, in parts of Florida, maybe all of Florida, it's illegal to, to catch water for drinking, which is absolutely yeah. insane and definitely not in people's best interests. That's not the case. Australia is well and truly a regulated nation. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Um, but but in terms of um, yeah, allowing people to live off grid, I I don't think it's nearly as discouraged as it is in the states. And I mean, you know, going back to your question, Kevin, about how to do how to you know take small steps toward you know walking a little bit or or depending a little bit less on the grid. I mean, you just start small, right? I love seeing people who are transforming their Floridian lawns into food forests. That's yeah. something that anyone, well, most people can do if you're not, maybe if you're not in a gated community or something and have those sort of regulations, but like, yeah, just growing food instead of growing, um, like basically meaningless monocultured grass. If you're growing food in your front yard, you're going to increase biodiversity. You're going to maybe grow some food for your family. You know, you're going to get more wildlife and habitat back into the space where you live. And yeah, I think there are a lot of things that, that we can do even when we're in restricted areas. Like to the, to that point, there's, this is literally the extent of my ability to save energy, <laughs> buying a Wi-Fi thermostat that will help schedule and control when your air conditioner goes on and off. I mean, wow. talk about baby steps, but like, that's the extent <laughs> of my, I mean, obviously running less water and trying to, I don't know. I don't want to waste your time. My point is like, I just admire the hell out of that. Like, I think that's. Oh. So cool that you guys have done that and you've come out of this as a family um, and still kept, you know, true to the footprint of, you know, minimizing your impact. And, um, you know, part of your, I mean, your whole ethos on, on living and uh, it's kind of come through, like through, through your projects that you work on and also, um it's, it's had an yeah. impact on me and also on other people that, that tune in. So, you know, kudos to you. That's very generous. That's very generous. Um, I mean, it's been incredibly rewarding just to experiment. We haven't always been successful, not by any stretch of the imagination. Enough, it's yeah. been really challenging at times. I mean, we were literally pooing in a, in a, um, like a garbage bin when I first came it was disgusting and I ended up with weird fungal infections because we were wet all the time during the wet season like let's not overly romanticize it but um yeah but right. it um I mean I grew up like probably most Floridian kids um with air conditioning on all summer and heating on all winter and trash getting trucked to the street and taken magically away and um and I grew up eating a lot of McDonald's and not knowing where my food came from and and all of those things just made me really curious about where the trash goes and where the food comes from and and how do we you know cut out the middle people a little bit and 
and really, you know, have deep meaning in our lives through connecting with those basic necessities of life. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that makes it so meaningful too is your willingness to admit that it's not easy. Um, and, and your willingness to share, you know, about fungal infections and, you know, <laughs> things like that. Like we, especially now, like with the advent of social media and especially Instagram, you have the whole van life, you know, thing. And it's like, people romanticize that. And it's, it's not exactly that. And I mean, I, I've lived in a vehicle before, you know, way before the term van life existed. I lived, <laughs> I lived in my truck because I didn't have any money in California, you know, and, uh, yeah. you know, slept in a tent in the Canary Islands because that was, there was nothing else there. And, you know, so I think that's one of the things that makes it so meaningful is your, your willingness to say like, yeah, this is rewarding, but Hey, let's not forget. It's also incredibly difficult and has challenges. And, and it's um, actually, it's actually the challenge that makes it meaningful. That's part of the thing. Like our modern lives are so convenient and, and, and I celebrate that often. (laughs) I love, I love having a hot shower. (laughs) I appreciate every single one. Um, But I think there is something lost sometimes when we have everything so easy. Um, If we think about that in terms of food, you know, fast food, the food is incredibly fast and it's incredibly cheap, but how is it so cheap and what nutrition is lost in the process? I think that's just like the the crudest metaphor of like, yeah, things are still lost, even if they're not accounted for up front. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I also, I want to just, Kevin was mentioning that, you know, your ethos coming through in the projects that you work on. And so I just want to kind of jump into, you know, your latest project, uh, your book, uh, She Surfs. And that came out in 2020, correct? Yeah, it did. It came out in yeah. 2020. I um, I had about four months to write it in 2019. Um, I had a two-year-old. And so I was just, you know, formulating plans while I was breastfeeding and, um, and getting up late in the night to, um, to write paragraphs and captions and sections of that book. Um, but I always had a feeling from a young age that I had... Um, a book in me, at least one. Um, so when the publisher came to me and asked me to write it, it was a really clear answer, even though it was a really tricky time in life to, to have um, cohesive thought sure. all the time you know, <laughs> with sleep, with sleep deprivation. Um, the mind doesn't always work in the clearest way, but um, hopefully that part of me doesn't come through in the book. <laughs> no, no, it's beautiful. And um, yeah, thank, thank you for sending us a copy by the way. And um I was curious um, when you, when I first saw it come out just with the timing of it, um, how, how was the timing between the, the WSL announcing the equal pay for female surfers and with your starting the book? Cause I think those would have been at least fairly close to each other. Correct. Yeah. The WSL decision was a few months before I started the book, um, okay. maybe even six, six months or so. Um, and I think that was probably part of what would have um, created the interest from a big international publisher to want a women's surfing book, because I tried for years to pitch women's surfing books to surf brands. And, and I was always met with the, the audience is too small. There aren't enough women will never sell enough to pay for the printing. And so it felt like such validation for a big publisher to go 
oh, this surfing thing is massive and there's heaps of women who want to buy books and hopefully men too, who want to see women surfing. Um, mm -hmm. So let's do this. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And now there are heaps of women surfing books. There, there are three that I've, that three different women have reached out to me about their own books that they're putting together about women surfing around the world. And I just think how fantastic, like the more, the merrier. We've got to make up for lost time for all of these women's stories not being included in the fold of mainstream surf. Yeah, definitely. So when, uh, when Gestalton approached you about the book, did they give you complete creative control as far as deciding who, who to put in the book and how to structure it and things like that? Yeah, they gave me a little bit of structure because they're experts, obviously, in, mm -hmm. in um, sort of formatting books. They, they gave me complete creative control over the content, and then they sort of whittled, in, whittled it into a shape that would be most readable. Yeah, so um, yeah, a lot of the women in the book are women that I've spent a lot of time with in the water, shared waves with, traveled with, or have just admired for a long time. They're women who... I feel like are really stretching the bounds of surfing culture and art and adventure um, and activism in so many ways. So I really just wanted to have this like um, central location to acknowledge the women who are doing that right now because mainstream surf media is still pretty slow to fold in women's stories. Um, I don't think the representation is quite where it should be yet. So it felt good to know that a young surfer, male or female could pick this book up and go, oh my gosh, women are doing this too. Women are charging big waves and are surfing in Iceland and are making books about surfing. And yeah, that's open for anyone. Well, this is, I mean, obviously a, a true statement. Um, the industry as a whole, we just showed uh, Girls Can't Surf in June, by the way. Mm. Fortunate. Um, so good. It's like so without... Good any effort whatsoever sold out like that was a no-brainer so my point is our audience as a small surf film festival community grassroots event is always always benefited by including um content documentary content um that involves diversity um of this experience as humans that we you know go through every day but as surfers individually it's always been male centric um, for, mm -hmm. for me, I, you know, it's uh, blind. I don't know if it's blinders, but it's also like been a little bit media driven, you know, all the surf mags that I read in, in, you know, back in the day, were always very focused on, you know, yeah. the masculine experience. And so it's one thing to live through that and keep those blinders on. But it's also like for John and I, an opportunity to go ahead and say, all right, everybody, here's an, you know, here's a chance for us to like kind of open it up. But that's been happening for a while now. Honestly, uh, it's been refreshing for everybody to say, mm -hmm. all right, maybe this surfing experience as humans that we've endured is not all about Boys Town. And it's been wonderful mm -hmm. to like kind of open it up for everybody. That's we, great. So I think that's on that point, sorry, uh, Lauren, yeah. on that point, no, we have ahead. a great movie coming in November called We Are Like Waves. It's about this uh, girl in Sri Lanka who is uh, surfing against all custom and all upbringing and uh, learning at, at a surf camp. She she was, I think, John, correct me if I'm wrong, a chef at the surf camp and mm -hmm. then 
um, began her brother, surfing. Her, yeah, her brother is one of the instructors at the surf mm -hmm. camp, and she's uh, she works in the kitchen, and uh, she decides that she she you know wants to and ought to be able to try surfing, and um, really credits her brother's uh, protection essentially for mm -hmm. allowing her to get in the water um, at first um, because. Uh, she, you know, like a lot of women around this planet, um, you know, when she first tries to get in the water in a culture that doesn't support that, she faced a lot of adversity. But um, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic short film, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's made by uh, a female as well, uh, Jordan Romero. Um, so yeah, it's just, um, we, we love when we get to bring, you know, films like that uh, to the community, and just hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, open people's broaden their horizons a little bit yeah that's so great and what you do also is you um you expand your audience you know when you have diversity you and that was the thing that I never understood about surf magazines in particular is you know the the most recent stats that I saw were from quite a few years ago but they said that um about 30 percent of the surfing population are women in the U.S. I think that that's probably more now um but it's like why as just in terms of business, purely financially, why would you exclude 30% of a potential market? This doesn't make good sense. As yeah. A business. Yeah. yeah, it's no, crazy. No kidding. Uh, we've experienced that too. Um, the, the idea is that uh, through this grassroots festival where we wanted to bring people together to like have a beer and watch a surf movie, it's become a little bit um, eye-opening for us too that yeah, maybe we did have a little bit of a limited view on where surfing was and where it's going. I think we all did. We, I think we yeah. all did. I mean, that's what we grew up with. And and I don't think there's any sort of conspiratorial exclusionary stuff happening. It's just that surf culture as we know it today was built by young men for young men, as anyone would do if they're mm. building a culture. You want to see more of what what you do and how how you experience surfing in the pages of surfing magazines and so that's why now it's so important to have more women yeah behind the scenes making surf mags making um documentary films like you all are bringing to the florida surf film festival um, and then having those community gatherings which are just so much fun i loved when we got to um come and show beyond the surface at, at your festival and yeah it's just it's great to have events that are about camaraderie and community and not about competition because um, a lot of our culture really does center around the competitive ideal, which is not how most of us experience or want to experience surfing. So why we focus on that with our media um, sort of defies all logic, I think. It really does. And I, I do feel like we've seen kind of like this fractural split um, over the last 10 years, say, or maybe even 20 years where, um, there really has been, you know, most of the films through like the 80s and 90s, well, in the 80s, not so much, the 90s, especially in early 2000s, most surf films that came out featured the guys that were on tour or the guys that were mm -hmm. getting featured in the magazines. And really, until Thomas made The Seedling, you know, like Thomas really changed that genre a lot. And in a lot of ways, he, he kind of started that fractural split. And I feel like it's grown exponentially you know over the years um and to where now like there's kids that grow up that never ever they dream about making a living at surfing but they never dream about surfing a heat 
and mm. that that's nice to see it is yeah um i've been chatting with thomas a lot lately we he has a new film coming out mm-hmm. either this year or next why uh, we went to morocco dave and i with thomas and ryan birch and trevor gordon and um and filmed uh so that section will be in his forthcoming film Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. He he changed. Thomas just was absolutely massively influential in my surfing life. To, I mean, mm-hmm. to get to see women surfing with real technical prowess, um, riding heavy logs that just really shaped the kind of surfing that I wanted to be doing. So it, sh- it reminds me all the time of the power of like showing different kinds of surfing because you never know who's going to connect with it and go, oh, wow light bulb moment like you can draw completely different lines than the majority of people are drawing surfing is this infinitely creative canvas that we can bring you know um all of ourselves to and it just is this huge opportunity to I don't know I feel like it's a huge opportunity right now to flesh out what it means to to ride waves and what that looks like and what we value in surfing it's I just feel like it's a really exciting time right now yeah, for sure. I can remember, you know, growing up, same thing, growing up in Florida and and wanting to be a competitive surfer myself, competing as a young, you know, as a teenager through ESA and all that. And then yeah. uh, going to Santa Barbara and, you know, trying to to um, have a, a professional career. And and then but then also sitting on the beach at Rincon and watching Brittany Leonard surf. And just being so like, this is a totally, this is completely different from what I do. Like what, what in the world is she doing? And, and, and then just gravitating more and more towards that and caring less and less about the heats and the contests and just being like, yeah, just that was a real shift for mm-hmm. me. We've had the good fortune of two Nathan. Yeah, Oldfield. I think contests can be great that way. Oh. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, we've had the good fortune of having two Nathan Oldfield uh, films in the festival at some point. And I know um, he's from down under and uh, making, you know, films of all sort of uh, whatever influences him. And and I actually, Mm. I can't wait. By the way, have you been in touch with him lately? Is he working on anything new? Nathan lives about five minutes away from us. No way. Okay, we're, cool. <laughs> yeah, we're close family friends. So yeah, we talk about things, these things a lot. Um, I know he has the seeds of some beautiful films in mind right now, but um, lately he has been teaching full time. Um, yeah. He and his wife both are teachers and um, and are just so incredibly generous and talented at what they do so he's been focusing on that side of things lately but i'm really looking forward to nathan nathan making another film because yeah, i love too. his films yeah i know and john you know and i have been emailing thomas for i don't know a year and a half at least about uh, is it called ye ye woo i think it's why Wylo. okay why thank you yeah, maybe that's why. <laughs> maybe that's responding. why he's not responding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in any case, uh, we would love to have Thomas out, and the the new project we, from what he's told us, has been um, his focus right now is to get some distribution locked in, and then talk about maybe showing his film at some surf film festivals to promote that. And um, man, it would be great to have him here. 
I can't wait yeah. to see it. I am. I don't know what he has in mind for it, but um, yeah, I'm excited to see his next creation because his other films were just so influential. Yeah, I think uh, I think Thomas would really dig the Atlantic Center for the Arts too. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. though the, the, there it's right up his alley. Sim- there's some symbiosis there that is just waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you have to you'll have to bait him with that. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So we just so, begged Scott Hewlett to go for. Uh, well, he he sent him an email, and uh, we uh, we didn't get a bite. We put a line in the water, and we didn't get a bite yet. But we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna continue to try. Um, all right. So, John, you were saying? Oh, I was just gonna say I I um I actually helped uh, I helped Moose uh, do the tour for Sprout when they came Aww. through town with Sprout. So yeah, it's. But yeah, same thing. Like Thomas's films have been really influential on my surfing experience and really kind of what um, for me was the beginning of that split of where I was like, I don't really care about contests anymore. Like these guys Mm -hmm. look like they're having way more of an experience and I'm more interested in that. And um, so, yeah, it's been it's been fun to watch Thomas's progression, like through the years with his different films and and the stuff he's done. but speaking of that, what uh, what are you working on personally now? The book's done and it's out. And what's mm. uh, what's next for you? Um, the podcast. I'm always working on the Well, not always. Actually, we set up a season six months on six months off. So I do six months of focus time on the podcast. Water people. Um, and we have a, a, a mini series called Watershed Chats that we focus on solutions to social and environmental challenges and the people who who are really working towards solutions with their work and play in the world um can you guys still hear me sorry we froze for a second yeah yeah we're good now okay okay cool cool yeah so um yeah the podcast um i have a few book pitches um in the pipeline that um, hopefully i'll get to work with another publisher um soon and then i'm also working on a short film right now I am, yeah, inspired by some of the filmmakers that we've already spoken about and the sort of lack of um, technical, technically focused female surf filmmakers. I wanted to sort of step in there and try my hand at experimenting with um, moving image, which is so humbling and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm having a great time learning along the way. So yeah, I'm working on a film with Patagonia um, that should come out next year and hopefully we'll get to bring it to the festival. Oh, we'd love to have it. Yeah, hopefully we can get you back. Day. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I haven't been home in two years. So I'm um, really looking forward to the state of the world settling down and, be- and being able to get back to my family and, um, and little tiny Atlantic waves. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. That's great. And without spilling too much of the beans, can you, can you give us a little insight on what the film is about? Um, it is, no, I don't think I can actually. Okay. That's all right. That's all right. I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away, um, before I start making it. Okay. Fair (laughs) enough. Fair enough. It will be, it will be reflective of the things that I have tended to focus on (laughs) up to this point. It's not going to be any surprise content. I wouldn't expect anything else. (laughs) That's great. All right. Well, uh, you know, after a good 40 minutes of chat, let's, let's see, do you have a story for us 
the podcast is called surf stories for the record but um mm. yeah what do you got for us anything fun gosh um <laughs> i feel like one of the best things about travel is that you end up collecting all these experiences from completely unfamiliar situations that really stretch us outside of the boundaries of ourselves that we construct for ourselves you know our tiny little bubbles um I've had plenty of trips where I've scored beautiful surf but I don't feel like those are necessarily the most memorable trips for me um in my 20s, I, I was lucky enough to get to go on a few boat trips and I found them a little bit, or I found myself feeling a little bit empty, like they were just a little bit lacking. I was hungry for learning about the world and I still am. Um, I was interested in culture and this interplay between surfing and culture. Um, so that's kind of how I carved out the niche that I have for myself now. Like I'm a mediocre surfer and an equally mediocre writer and, and together <laughs> I can be just good enough to make things that are just interesting enough to get paid to do. Um, so I took to writing, um, more and more. And the really cool thing about writing, um, and with any creative endeavor endeavor is that you can pull inspiration from everywhere. Um, and I started working on trips with my friend. She's a photographer, Ming Nam Chong. And we'd pitch these really idyllic lifestyle surf campaigns to the brands that we were working with. Um, and they would foot the bill for our travel. Um, and we'd deliver, you know, those dreamy kind of idyllic surf images for their campaigns. Um, so I'm just setting the scene here. Um, one trip that I remember, we did a few of those trips. One was to the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean. We went to Hawaii um, and a few other locations. Um, but this one that I remember in particular was actually inspired by the movie Anchorman. Have you, have you guys <laughs> yeah. seen it? I'm sure you've seen it. <laughs> um, I, can, I can recite it to you if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll quiz you now. <laughs> you, Cannonball. Do you, <laughs> do you do you remember the scene where Ron and Veronica Corningstone are overlooking the city of San Diego and he tells her that San Diego, San Diego is in fact means Wales vagina. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So this trip was <laughs> was based on the idea of wondering about the whale's vagina. Like <laughs> how 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 big is it? <laughs> like <laughs> what do we know about them? <laughs> Um, this is kind of obscure and weird, but it's an insight into how I really struggle to explain to my parents what it is that I do. <laughs> um, so I started researching. So I was like, whale's vagina. I've never thought about that before. What a weird and um, fascinating concept. Your listeners are now moving on to their next podcast. <laughs> all seven. No, no, they're they're all tuning in. They're sitting there drink down and they're like, well, it's just got good. <laughs> So I found this story about a woman who was swimming with whales and she actually experienced orgasm in the water because of the vibration of whale song. Um, and I thought, well, that definitely sounds worth investigating. Yeah. Research. <laughs> so, this is for yeah. research. <laughs> so so it, it turns out that every female mammal, in addition to the vagina, has a clitoris. And the really incredible thing about the clitoris is that it's the only organ in the human body created purely for pleasure. It has twice as many nerve endings as 
um, as the penis. And, and, um, and it wasn't actually until 1998 that it was quote discovered that the clitoris wasn't just what you can see from the outside, but that it's this organ that extends well into the female body, like nine centimeters inside. Um, so we've been to the moon, we've sent rovers to the outer edges of the galaxy, and the clitoris was discovered in 1998. <laughs> you know, like, what is that? Okay, so all this research in, um, I found out in Iceland, there's the Icelandic Phallological Museum um, that opened eight years prior to the discovery of the clitoris. Um, it houses 215 penises and penile parts belonging to most of the land and sea mammals in Iceland. Um, anyway, so this was my research. I, um, I got together with Ming and said, I really want to go and swim with whales. Um, so we booked a trip to a tiny group of islands in Tonga where female whales calve and nurse their young. And there's also surf there. So we went hunting for surf and we pitched that we worked with my sponsors at the time and pitched the story to um, John Lawrenson, who helped found electric sunglasses. He had mm -hmm. a magazine at the time called Summer Sight. And he was stoked. He was like, yeah, I want to I want to know more about that. Let's do that story. Um, so Tonga is this incredible um, stretch of 169 islands in the South Pacific. Only 36 of them are inhabited. Um, we flew in, you know, over the beautiful crystalline waters and we got picked up on this traditional-ish kind of blue wooden Polynesian style boat with a little motor on the back. And um, we arrived to this just beautiful low coral limestone island that's totally off the grid. Um, and we proceeded to, to wait for whales. We'd like, we'd paddle around. We were there for probably a few days. We were there, we went out on the boat the next day looking for whales and then didn't see any, started paddling boards and kayaks around. We free dove in the most incredible electric blue water you could ever imagine. Still didn't see any whales in daylight. And so the days are ticking by and we're like, okay, there's no surf, there's no whales. What are we doing? We're just wasting, you know, like if we'd been on, on holiday, it would have been incredible. We'd just be swinging in hammocks, but we'd promised these people to deliver all this content. So we felt a bit of that pressure. Um, and then at night, what we started hearing is we were tucked inside these little grass shacks with, you know, mozzinets tucked into our beds so we weren't getting eaten alive at night. Um, the air would fill up with whale song because these, these Tongan islands are like these super uh, deep limestone land masses um, with like crevasses in between where the whales basically tuck right up next to the islands and have their babies and they're really safe from big, big predators. And so they'd sing and the islands would ref refract their song up into the air. And so we were going to sleep at night with with whale song. It was so, so beautiful. Um, That's crazy. So I had, yeah, I had heaps of time to continue my research about <laughs> whales' vaginas because I <laughs> took plenty of material with me. And um, there's not a lot known about whales' vaginas, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I reached out to a few experts and they basically said, look, we don't know. No one's really studied this. Um, so you're just going to have to go and try to have a firsthand experience. <laughs> so we get to like, we get to day five or so still no whales. And we have one last chance on the boat to get some photos, um, preferably with whales, because we were heavy on pitching the whales in this story, obviously. <laughs> um, 
And it was totally naive of me to do that because of course, when you're dealing with wildlife, there's never any guarantee at all. So on this last morning, the nerves were high. We motored out into the deep blue water in between the Coraline Islands and, um, and we're hoping to catch whales finally, or at least feel the vibration of their song when we were swimming. And, um, and finally we saw a spout and they were coming our way. So we kind of like pulled up alongside them and jumped in the water. And um, just as we were jumping in the water, we started feeling this other vibration, this like, you know, kind of man-made vibration. And it was this big fuck off boat. <laughs> Sorry oh, for the no. Australian, Australian oh, English. Pulls up and um, and they were just chasing down the whales. They scared them away, uh, so they went motoring off, and um, and we were just like <gasps> devastated. We finally had our chance, um, but these what I've come to call harass holes scared them away. Um, <laughs> but anyway, they went speeding off, and we just basically hung in the water, kind of defeated, but also just enjoying like the incredible privilege of getting to be in the water. And, um, and as we were doing that, the mama whale and the baby whale actually swam, swam back and came and scoped us out. And we got to be really close to them. And their, um, their male escort was swimming way down in the deep and, and singing up through our bodies. And um, yeah, we got wow. to have this incredible peace, you know, peaceful encounter because our motor was cut. Um, and the other boat was quite far away at that point. And um, yeah, it was just really, really humbling to have such a massive sentient being show interest in you, this little like ill-equipped water body trying to stay afloat compared to these massive ancient creatures who just move through the water with such incredible grace. Um, kind of jokingly about investigating whales, whales vaginas um the story actually ended up being about about the way that whale, the way that whale swims are being conducted in places like Tonga and um and how our deep desire uh to connect with other sentient beings is actually endangering them um the yeah so anyway we jumped on the boat we got the photos we were just buzzing from this incredible experience and we had like one day left of our trip. So we went, um, Mark Belvedere, who's, um, who was our captain and he's pioneering a movement to try to get all whale swimming vessels in Tonga sail powered, which I think would be incredible mm. because whales and dolphins are incredibly acoustically sensitive and they get scared off by, by motors and things like that. Um, he's, he's pioneering that movement. He dropped us off on one of the bigger islands and um, we went looking for surf at that point to try to, you know, like with women surfing in my era anyway, the surfing was always kind of secondary for sponsors in terms of delivering assets. So um, the whales came first and then we went search searching for surf and um, we basically had an afternoon and a morning to try to get some surf imagery. The wind was on shore, so we just went walking across this island underneath, you know, beautiful coconut palms. We went to the other side of the island where the wind was offshore and we saw this beautiful little left-hander peeling. We got on, we had one board and some swim, swim fins. So we swam out and um, couldn't get to the wave. The, <laughs> the current was just ripping off the side of the island. So we couldn't actually get to it. So we had like, you know, an hour the next morning to get surf imagery and the wind went offshore and we managed to actually get a few beautiful little reef pass peaks and then we jumped on the plane had all we needed and um yeah I got to come home pretty 
pretty full of experience and uh and yeah getting to be in the water with incredible beings and finding surf too yeah that's, that's amazing phenomenal yeah what a great have you, story have you um <laughs> have you had any other experiences with whales since then yeah yeah quite a few so we're lucky um we have a humpback whale migration that goes just past us twice a year. Um, the humpbacks here on the east coast of Australia are one of the great success stories of the environmental conservation movement worldwide because they came back from being hunted to near extinction to now they're in the 20 to 30,000 in numbers. Um, so we have all of those whales swimming past. They go north um, from the southern ocean to have their babies and then right around now they're sort of trailing off now but they swim back with their young and swim really close to the beach and so we get to surf with them all the time see them breaching um you know when you're sitting on headlands watching the ocean and yeah they just feel like an incredible presence to get to have and be part of the surfing experience here oh that's amazing yeah and i actually um from your time here, do you, do you remember a, a surfboard shaper in New Smyrna, uh, Randy Richenberg? Ooh, I remember the name. Yeah, so Ra- Randy yeah. is is a longtime shaper, and um, he's uh, he's a le- he's a full on legend around here, and uh, he's done, he's traveled a lot. He's shaped for a lot of um, really good surfers um, over the years, but he has a friend that is. Um, a scientist, and I'm, I don't know exactly what type, but um, he studies uh, whales and he studied the humpback, <laughs> what he studied the humpback whale, not just the vagina, but the whole whale. Um, but he studied humpback whales for like 10 years. And he, he is a, I believe a, a professor at MIT. Wow. And uh, so he approached Brandy with the notion that the, in his research, he found that the, the humpback whale was the most agile um, being on earth for relative to its size. And, um, he attributed it to like the, on the leading edge of the pectoral fluke, the, um, the, the look, they look serrated and they're actually, they're actually called tubercles. And so he thought Randy might be able to use that in surfing. And so Randy started designing fins that way and, and figured out that it actually like I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but it like it reduced drag by like 30% and increased angle of attack by like 40%. Wow. And yeah, it's nuts. So he, he's been experimenting with some of these fins and I've been lucky enough to get to be a test pilot for uh, some of the sets. And yeah, it's just crazy. It's so cool how, you know, you see something in nature and, and it, uh, you know, able to transcend or transfer it into, into surfing and what we do. And, um, just makes me feel like they're these, what appear to be large kind of clumsy animals are so efficient, so much more efficient than us. And And you feel that you feel that in the water, like you feel they can swim so close to you, but never touch you. They're so incredibly sensitive and, um, and agile in the water. And I was also going to mention that there's this great tradition in surfing of, pulling from natural patterns and and shapes to construct mm-hmm. surfboard design. I know our neighbor, the great uh, Californian designer, George Greeno, he studied albacore fins to design mm-hmm. his, you know, his incredible creations. So yeah, I, I like that surfing has that long lineage of, yeah, looking to the living world to try to make our experience of being in the ocean more efficient since we're just kind of 
flailing terrestrial bodies for the most part. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 newest thing I just just talked to Randy in the water the other day, and the newest thing he's been working on with Kelly is they've actually been looking at um, birds of prey and their their wings for fin mm. design, and uh, yeah, just basically t- redistributing the area of the fin to like mimic that of like a bird, a, a bird of prey when it's in attack mode and how its wing is shaped. And yeah, it's fascinating stuff. That's so cool. It's funny how like, I, I feel like probably every generation lives with the assumption that they're experiencing the pinnacle of the experience in yeah. surfing or whatever it is, you know, like yeah. the way, the way that surfing culture is now is has only been for, you know, 30, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years. It's minute in the long arc of surfing time. Um, So I find that really exciting that it can all change so dramatically really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Well, I'll take all this highbrow conversation and I'll boil it down to what I believe is a title for this podcast. And <laughs> can't wait to hear it. A lot to do. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, um, I uh, actually I the, vi- the video we're going to use is the video of Ron uh, having that conversation in the car. Yeah, Thank exactly. You. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lauren, you've been too kind to spend an hour at least with us. And I want to thank you, but I also can't wait for you to come back and share your work with our fans and this great community event that we, John and I put our hearts into, and we just love that you've been a part of it in the past. And then, you know, this chat has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for taking the time. I know how much energy it takes to organize events. Thank you, you know, on behalf of our culture for making an event that's so inclusive and beautiful. And um, I can't wait to get back to the Florida Surf Film Festival. You guys just do a great job. And um, yeah, thanks for that. You got it. You have no idea how much money we make from this event. (laughs) So It's like, it's incredible. Like we're just floating in cash over here, but no, it's wonderful (laughs) to do it. And uh, Atlantic Center for the Arts, our our gracious host, who uh, honestly hasn't charged us like retail value for their for their rental space. But I mean, we still like to support them and, and they, they're just, they're worthy of a mention here because what they accomplish in, in the artistic space. And uh, it's right along, like it's well aligned with what we're doing. And um, I wish you could be here this November, but definitely uh, when you come Me back, too. you know, we're gonna, we're gonna show whatever it is you've got cooking back there. And uh, thanks again for coming <laughs> on the show. All right. What a great conversation with Lauren. Yeah, no kidding. I was uh, surprised to learn of, I don't know, like all of that went into her career since she left Stetson to become a filmmaker, uh, brand ambassador, activist, activist. Absolutely. There's like a multi-layered person here that, I don't know, it's always fun getting to talk to uh, people on this podcast because some I don't know at all and some I felt like I knew and realized I didn't and Lauren falls into that category you know yeah and uh, we were lucky enough to have Lauren at the festival in um what was that 2014 14 something like that something like that but um but yeah we were excited to have her 
and uh, look forward to having her back out with uh, her new project with Patagonia. Yeah, that's right. And uh, speaking of the film festival, um, it's coming up next weekend. Yeah, I'm excited. We have some great films on Friday, November 19th that I think top the charts. Um, one specific jury member liked Havana Libre so much, she gave it uh, Best Picture, Best Documentary this year. Um, he'll remain confidential for now. But anyway, I wanted to let everybody know that Havana Libre starts at 5.30 on Friday. So get there early, grab your seat, and uh, watch a great documentary about Cuban surfers attempting to get surfing recognized as a national sport in that country. So um, that is followed up by a few shorts and Jack Coleman's uh, what I would call freeform five-year film about Joey Bookout. Yeah, what a great film that is, and uh, set to a set to a complete album. Um, Nineteen seventy-six, relatively clean rivers was a kind of a one-album band, I think, and it's uh, it's quality. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff, and really uh, fits with uh, Joey surfing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a real treat. And then following that, one of my personal favorite films, um, Water Get No Enemy. Um, it's a story about two French guys that go down to Liberia and uh, they l learn about the history of Liberia and the history of surfing there and uh, kind of contrasts uh, two adult surfers that grew up as child soldiers and okay. now their kids are getting to grow up as child surfers. And yeah, just a fantastic film. Not without a lot of action, though. We have, I mean, two or three left-handers in that film that... Um, pretty much blow away anything i've seen in florida uh in my life i mean some of the highest quality lefts i've seen ever yeah it looks like indo it, it looks does. like the, if you said it was the mentalized nobody would doubt you yeah, for a second it's incredible I, I i want to go to liberia anyway so saturday night we have the uh documentary world premiere of not the world premiere but the u.s mainland premiere of waterman yeah, the Duke Kahanamoku documentary, which is fantastic and uh, documents Duke's life not only as a surfer but as a five-time Olympic athlete, um, gold, medal, gold medal winner, world record setter. Um, it's just a fantastic film, and uh, filmmaker Isaac Halasima will be in attendance uh, to show that as well. Yeah, no kidding. And then, you know, coming off of 2019's win uh, for Best Documentary with Spoons, Wyatt Daly and Justin Jarchow Mish will be here on Saturday, well, both nights, and they are going to basically world premiere the uh, 4K remaster of Morning of the Earth, widely considered to be the second best surf movie ever made. Yeah, 50th anniversary of Morning of the Earth, and I can tell you, um, without spoiling it, Kevin and I have watched it, and the, the 4K remaster is astounding. It's breathtaking. And yeah, especially we are we're lucky enough to get a 4K projector um, for the festival, and so yeah, it it literally looks like it was shot yesterday. Yeah, we upgraded like a day before our Father's Day weekend event, and we've noticed a a, a big difference on the screen. And we hope you enjoy it too. Um, a lot of people in attendance: Matt Warshaw from Encyclopedia of Surfing, uh, Scott Hewlett from The Surfer's Journal. We'll be there. We have Jack Coleman presenting his movie along with Joey. And, uh, well, it's just, a, in my opinion, a star-studded lineup for what will be a great weekend before Thanksgiving. Yeah, so we look forward to seeing everybody out there. Uh, you can get tickets at floridasurffilmfestival.com 
or uh, hit us on our Instagram at FL Surf Film Fest. And you can find tickets there as well. And we'll look forward to seeing everybody. Thank you.